We are moving forward through a series on the book of Philippians. And I'm going to go ahead and just start out by reading our passage for today. So our passage comes from Philippians 1, 18 through 26. I'm going to read from the NIV version. So if you have a Bible or you want to grab one, you can pull it out and read. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen or it's the ESV is printed in your bulletin on the cover, but it'll sound a little bit different. Not too much, I don't think. It says this. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... Living is Christ, and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask now that these words would settle into us. I ask now that through this message, Jesus Christ would be exalted and put on display and magnified and glorified. I ask that as we go out from here, more people would have made a concrete decision to live a life that exalts and magnifies Jesus Christ to the world. I pray for your Holy Spirit's help right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. So how our passage starts off this week. We're going through the whole book of Philippians, which by and large is a very positive, kind of happy book. It's very passionate and encouraging. Written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, Macedonia. And as you read the letter and begin to get a picture of Paul's circumstances, you'll notice that one of the more astonishing features, the surprising features, is this deep sense of joy throughout the whole letter. And I'm not talking about some wishy-washy, wishful thinking, sort of flowery, surface-level joy here. There's a passion. There's a wholehearted wholeness of living here, a purpose in dying, and an overall sense of deep joy that pervades the mood of the entire letter. And the reason that that's kind of surprising, the reason that's kind of astonishing, is that when you look at Paul's circumstances, you realize that by and large, They are the opposite of what we would normally consider joyful. Why is he in such a joyful position right now? He's in prison. He's not in denial about his situation. He's very realistic. So where does it come from? And if Paul isn't just some wacko, is this for you? Is this for me? Can you have that? Do you have that? Do you have a deep, abiding joy that transcends your circumstances? Do you want it? 
As you come here today, do you come here with depression? Do you come here with hopelessness? Apathy? Do you want that to change? I think there's a resource here for you if you want to see that change. I'm always blown away by the statistics that show how in a nation that is more affluent and rich and comfortable than almost any other country on the face of the planet, we also share the highest statistics for suicide and depression. The buzzword for the last few decades has always been the question of what is the secret to finding true happiness? Where do you get it? For some reason, we don't seem to have it very much. And what we're going to see here is that real joy cannot be dependent upon external circumstances of your life, but instead is rooted in the definition of your life. Real joy is not found in the circumstances of your life, but is rooted in the definition of your life. And we're going to flesh out what that means. Real joy cannot depend on Things went well for me this week, therefore I'm happy. Things went poorly for me this week, therefore I'm depressed. Rather, it has to depend on what am I living for? What's the purpose of my life? What's the direction of my life? What's the goal of my life? What's it about? What am I for? That's where joy is found. So let's dissect this message and explore those roots a little bit. Paul says, Christ is proclaimed, and for that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Why? Why are you rejoicing? Why do I have joy? It says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is saying, I can rejoice because God is taking this, and he's turning it into something good. What's the this that he's turning into something good? We talked about that very much last week. That was the, the subject matter of Mark's message, and it's online. You can go online and listen to it. But one thing you have to keep in mind here, this guy, the Apostle Paul, whether you buy his stuff or not, whether you believe in the Bible or not, without a doubt, the Apostle Paul is the most influential leader in the history of the world. No question Because he is the primary architect of the largest faith movement on the planet, which has shaped more cultures and civilization than anything else on the face of the earth. Paul is Jesus' star quarterback. Okay? His career is the strategic planting of churches, and his vision was to move the gospel to the ends of the earth. He could go into a brand new city, cold turkey, start conversing and debating with people, and within months, leave that place with a church planted in it. Amazing. But now we find Paul in a Roman prison, most likely literally chained to to a member of the Praetorian Guard, day and night, The guards would rotate, but they were always chained to Paul. He would likely have had no privacy. Eat, drink, go to the bathroom. You're always chained to somebody. This would be humiliating. And the circumstances look bad. It looks like failure. Why would God allow this to happen to his star quarterback? And Paul is writing to the Philippians because they're likely distraught over the situation. I don't get what's going on here. This doesn't make sense from a kingdom of God perspective. 
This doesn't look very strategic to us. And he's reassuring them. And let me tell you, this is a dilemma that Christians confront a lot. Because things don't seem to go according to what should be God's plan. I remember last year, just a year ago, Nabil Qureshi. Anybody know that name? Very influential man who converted from Islam to Christianity and began touring and preaching with Ravi Zacharias' ministry and writing multiple books, died of stomach cancer at the age of 34, at the, just the budding of an incredible career, very strategic, inroads to bridging the gap between Christians and Muslims with the love of Christ. Why? Why now? Why leave a wife and child? Why, you know, this, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We have a lot of questions, and we'll never see the whole picture or the plan this side of heaven. And Paul doesn't claim to give the whole plan, but we can often see glimpses And for Paul, he's able to point to at least two ways in which God is using this circumstance for good. The first is what we talked about primarily last week, that these Praetorian Guard members just happened to be uh, chained to the most persuasive and influential evangelist the world has ever seen. Paul has a very captive audience, and things are starting to change throughout the ranks. God is beginning to stir up a movement within a whole new sector of culture and society through this event. And more Christians are becoming bold through that to be able to share their own faith. So there's some victory there. That doesn't justify the whole thing, but there's some good coming out of it. The second way God is turning this situation to something good is in Paul's own life, he says. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And that's kind of an unfortunate word in terms of a translation into English from the Greek. Because it sounds like what Paul is saying, I'm confident that God is going to work this situation such that I'm going to be set free from prison. So the joy is coming from the knowledge that you're going to be able to get out of your suffering. Is that what he's saying? Is that where joy is found? No. It's not. Because as we read onward, he's not just hopeful that he's going to be delivered from prison. You see him kind of begin to debate with himself a little bit. He begins, he begins by saying, you know, I really don't know what's going to happen. And if I, you know, if I end up staying in prison, that's actually kind of okay with me. If I get out, that's great. It's more fruitful labor. Uh, what does he mean when he says this will turn out for my deliverance? Well, the word deliverance there is the same Greek word as the word salvation, which is why it's probably very confusing why they decided to translate it as deliverance because it's almost always salvation. It's the word soteriai. The study of salvation theology is called soteriology. It's salvation. This will turn out for my salvation. But that raises questions of, okay, what is he saying? Are you saying you get saved by being in prison? You get saved through suffering? Well, we're going a little deeper here, but the Bible speaks about salvation in three different ways commonly. One, there's an immediate sense. There's an experience of saying yes to Jesus, of putting your faith in Christ and accepting his gift of salvation for you. And when that happens, you are saved. That's what baptism is declaring. I'm rising out as a new creation. I am brand new. I am saved. There's a moment of salvation. 
But there's also a future salvation. The Bible talks about a day of salvation. There's a day when we will be actually completely free from all the effects of sin and bondage and decay and sadness and corruption and every tear will be wiped away from every eye. We're not saved yet in that sense. It's coming, but it's not here yet, right? But then there's a third way. There's an ongoing process of salvation. There's a transformation in my character. There's a changing of who I am by the power of the Holy Spirit from one degree to the next, being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And I believe that's what Paul's talking about here. Romans 5, 2 through 5 has all three in there. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Immediate salvation. Today, we stand in the grace of God through faith. We've been given access. That's a past tense, immediate salvation. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's hope and joy in a future event, a future glory, a future salvation to be experienced. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Joy in the process of salvation. And character produces hope. So in this way, we could say this kind of salvation is a kind of character formation, transformation that takes place, working by the Holy Spirit in us. And it becomes the evidence of a legitimate, immediate salvation and a signpost pointing forwards as a herald of a future salvation that's going to take place. How does God work out that present saving process in us? How does he change us? Often, but not always, through suffering. How do we normally think about undergoing the challenge of character formation? What do you do when you say, I need to change? I need to change my character. I need to change my life. I need to change how I live. What do I do? You might read some books. You might join a support group. Oftentimes, we try from the outside in to change our character. If you're a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, you earn badges, you increase in rank, you accomplish a list of tasks, you overcome a prescribed list of challenges. All of this is geared towards getting you to grow in your character. The military is set up this way. Mark talked about it last week when he drew that parallel between Paul and the Praetorian Guard, these highly elite, disciplined servants of the emperor and the Roman military. How did they develop the character to be able to say, Caesar is Lord and my life belongs to him? Where does that come from? Yet at times their loyalty could be bought and there's historical records of these Praetorian Guards being involved in assassination attempts. So their character could be fragile. It's not so trustworthy. They could be bought, and yet here they are, paid highly for their loyalty to Caesar, next to a man who has nothing, whose circumstances are terrible, yet his loyalty and joy in Christ is fierce and impenetrable. How could they not wonder, what's the deal with this guy? What's up with him? What does he have? As a new parent, the first 12 to 18 months are often very blissful, minus the lack of sleep, right? 
you know, you got this cute little child. Yeah, you got to change diapers and all that stuff. But oh my word, aren't they glorious? Like that 18 months period is just fantastic. That's where we're at. Where we're, at. We're, we're almost at two years now with our littlest one. But right about this time is when they start getting an attitude. Right? And, and what happens is you have to adjust to the attitude. Right? You start realizing that their needs are greater. Their attitude starts to change. Their their character shaping of themselves, everything is growing, and it's going to demand more out of you, more wisdom, more time, more commitment, and you realize how utterly selfish you are. And you start realizing, I don't want to let go of guy night. You know, I, and, and there's demands that are made on my character. What are you going to do to get that character? You could read a book. You could join a support group. But nothing changes your character in terms of your heart for that child, like an internal heart change from the inside out. And nothing can be more effective than that heart change than a good crisis. The prospect of losing that person, of waking up to the value of that person in your life, that can change people. I'm not advocating that we should see suffering as something good, nor something to go seeking after, nor am I claiming that suffering always results in positive character transformation. You've seen people become more bitter. You've probably seen Christians become more withdrawn, less loving, less transformative in their own character, more bitter, more selfish. So is this all there is to it, or is there something more? And what we've said is that Paul is claiming to have joy because he believes that his trials will result result in his salvation in the form of character transformation. But is that the source of his hope, his joy? Or is it a byproduct of it? Is that sufficient? Give me cancer and I'll be happy because I'm becoming a better person. Eh, no. join a small group. The leader says, hey, let's do an icebreaker game. Highs and lows. What were your highs and lows for the week? Let's start with highs. Somebody says, I got a raise this week. Someone else says, we bought a house. Someone else says, our child started potty training. And then the fourth person says, my character is being developed through suffering and I'm a better person. (laughs) I don't think you're going to hear that too often. That was your high, you know. There's some maturity there for sure if that's the case. But what then for Paul is his ultimate goal? What is his prize? What is the intended outcome that he calls his deliverance, his salvation? What is driving him onward and giving him joy? It's not just this picture of of joy. It's It's not just the person he's becoming through suffering. That's the byproduct. The key is to understand what that character actually looks like in the first place. And the secret is in the next couple of verses. Verse 20 says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but with all but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul can have joy because his life is not about finding joy. Paul can rejoice in his ongoing character transformation and salvation because his life is not actually about his own character transformation and salvation. It's not about himself at all. 
The secret is this. To me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. To live is Christ. My life is about Jesus Christ. My life is rooted in Christ. My life is for the cause of Christ. My life is defined by Christ. And when my life is defined by Christ and the circumstances of suffering cannot take away my joy because the circumstances of suffering cannot touch my life because my life is not rooted in those circumstances. I have a different definition of life. It cannot rob me of that which gives me purpose and meaning Value, solidity, character, hope. What defines your life? What's the definition of your life? What are some alternatives? Paul would have encountered different kinds of people, notably Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans would say, my life is pleasure. For me to live is fun. Sure, you have to work, but you work so that you can play. So you can afford good things, good toys, and good food. So you can go on vacations. So you can retire someday. You live for as much material fun as you can have because you're going to die. So live it up while you can. But then when it's stripped away, is your joy stripped away too? The Stoics would have said, For us to live is knowledge and virtue. To live a life that isn't, it's almost the opposite of the former. To live a life that is not influenced by emotional impulses and pleasures or or sadness and sorrows. But to live above all that. To be cognitive and higher than everyone else. What happens when it's all taken away? Can you really have that without breaking? When you face incredible suffering? Maybe you don't fit into those two categories. Most of us probably don't. But even to say, for me to live is my family. My life is my kids. For me to live is my children. Or to live is my job. My life is my career. What's your life going to be? What's your joy going to be when it's over? Because it will be. I live for my hobbies. For me to live is music. Fishing, that is living. For me to live is fishing. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these things that we've talked about so far. All of these things can bring a level of joy to life. But if this is what we're living for, if this is what defines our joy, where we go to find it, how sustainable is it? How sustainable is it? How much will it last? What will it really give you long term? What does it depend upon? Does it not end up holding you hostage and in chains? Because there is coming a day when it will all be stripped away. For some, sooner than later. Others would say, well, joy comes through knowing you've lived a good life, 
a good moral life. You left the world a better place than you found it. You left a legacy. You treated people well. And there's peace and there's joy in that. Why did Javert kill himself in Les Miserables? Remember the story? The policeman? He lived a moral life. Lived by the book. Letter of the law. His identity was bound up in knowing that he was a good person. But in so doing, he could not handle the idea that this criminal, Jean Valjean, could be a better man than him. He could not handle the idea that he himself needed grace. And he crumbled under the weight of the failure of his own foundation. He lost all joy. We're going to celebrate Bob Krause's memorial uh, today. One of the features about Bob as I talked to his family this week was Bob was a great guy. From, from beginning to end, Bob was a guy who fiercely valued integrity, hard work, family, the outdoors. I mean, he was a good moral guy. But when a crisis hit and he first began to deal with lung cancer in 2001, he realized he needed a savior and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And so on May 20-something, a few days before his death, one of his last lucid moments, his grandson was with him. And he said, Grandpa, can I pray with you? And Bob's eyes snapped open. He said, yeah. So as he's praying for him, he says to his grandpa, he says, Grandpa, God has got you. And Bob said, I know, I know, I know. How did he know? Because he had a solid 40-year career at Trollson Motors? Because he was a family values kind of guy? Because he was a good moral character? No, because you'd never know if that were the case. You'd never know if it was enough. How big is God's checklist? Did I do enough? Was it enough? You'd be sitting there going, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Petrified with fear. But Bob knew that it can never be enough. But the Bible says it can never be enough because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus can say, you can know, you can know that I've got you because your righteousness was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so to die is gain. It's a win-win situation for Paul. To go on living, he says, is fruitful labor for me. I can continue to promote the cause of Christ. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, we have to be a little careful with this passage, because it's often been preached as though dying and being with Christ is your only source of joy. Like, you can get through suffering now because by and by you'll be in a better place. And that's how you can have joy. Escape the suffering. But pay attention to the context here. That's not what he's saying. Because he's saying the root of my joy comes from knowing that in my life and in my death, I can exalt Jesus Christ. I can promote him in my death. I can die with him. I can die for him. I can exalt him in the way I die, in the way I suffer. 
So it is better to be with him, not just to join up with him after, but to identify with him in my death in a way that exalts and promotes him. That's where joy comes from. But when you can say that, when you have lived your life promoting and exalting Jesus Christ, when everything you are about, everything you are exhausting yourself for, suffering for, striving for, is the cause of Jesus Christ, when you find joy in living for something, how much more will that joy explode on the day that you meet him? On the day that you see him and the prize is before you. The glory of Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant, as he throws his arm around you and says, welcome home, brother. Welcome home, sister. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Nothing can touch my life because either way is a win-win situation for me. Do you want to live for something? What if real joy can't be found in the pursuit of joy? What if real joy can't be found in the pursuit of character? What if real joy is found when your life is about the cause of Christ? What if you said, my life, my death, all for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, to raise him up, to magnify him. Now, there's some objections here. We, we're fearful people, right? We're like, I don't want to be like those Christians who go around bashing people over the head with their religion and doing more harm than good. You know, I don't want to be like those Christians. Well, let me tell you, those Christians don't have the joy of Christ. You can't impart the love of God with a love that you haven't received yourself. Those people are using religion to cover for their own insecurities and shortcomings. And we're not promoting that. I don't want to appear intolerant. You know, tolerance has become a big buzzword. There's a shallow kind of tolerance today that says you cannot bring any truth claim to a table in conversation because you might offend somebody. And they need to all be equally valid and legit. But what that's resulted in is a culture of media warfare, Facebook warfare, parties joining party lines, throwing stones at each other, having no idea what's actually going on in the other person's heart. The ability to have real conversations and around a table and have discourse over disagreements and, and bring real pluralism to the table and actually have a conversation with people of differing viewpoints and be respectful with one another is just going down the drain. Because of tolerance. Now, there's a kind of tolerance that's good that says we live peacefully with people who disagree with us. We do not insult them. We would never advocate that. But there's a kind of tolerance that's not good. Dorothy Sayers wrote this about it in like the 40s. This has been around for a while. She wrote, In the world it is called tolerance, but in hell it's called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. I don't want to continually abide 
in the hell of living for comfort and mediocrity and the fear of offending someone. To live for nothing. There's no joy in that. As soon as you make your life about anything, you will have opponents. Someone will disagree with you. A group of us pastors from around the community met up with Lori Gear, the mayor, this week. We had a conversation about what's on her heart for the community and how the churches can, can partner and get behind that. And one of the other pastors there we, I was talking with uh, said something to me. He said, you know, I could never run for office because the moment you do anything, you have enemies. Right? But do we stand for anything? Do we do anything? The moment you stand for anything, you have people who will disagree with you. You will likely have enemies. So, accept it. Love them, but accept it. To live a life that doesn't stand for anything is a joyless life. It is a life without a cause. It is the hell of mediocrity. You might not even know you're in that hell. You might think you're doing pretty good right now, and you'll never understand it until the day you realize the prison walls for what they are by seeing the blue sky and the fresh air for the first time. When you actually step out and say, I'm going to live for something today. I'm going to get over my fear and exalt Jesus Christ by my life and my death. If you proclaim, may Christ always be honored in my body through my life and death, you will find disagreement. You may even make enemies. You are called to love your enemies. It will not be comfortable. But if Paul's example is true, if this is true, if this is real and he's not just some lunatic, then the cause of Christ is worth it. There is more joy here than there. It can be found here if you're willing. You'll live a life and die knowing that it mattered. But how does one get their heart into this? You just coerce people to do something? No, it comes from the inside out. And that's where the gospel comes into play here. And this is the passage that we repeat every week as the key Focal point of Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. You know, the Praetorian Guard built up their loyalty through proven discipline and obedience. They trained in order to earn the rank and approval of their emperor and leader. But our leader, Christ, transforms us not from the top down and by making demands, but by getting underneath us, by winning our hearts. He doesn't force our loyalty. He wins our hearts. 
Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He loved me and gave himself for me. In John 17, 19 and 20, Jesus is praying to God with his disciples and he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What's that mean? To be consecrated. Just as I give my life to this cause. If you're going to consecrate yourself to compete in the Olympics next year, it means everything about your life is going to be training for the Olympics. You're going to set a lot of things aside, and you are gung-ho Olympics for that year, right? Jesus is saying, I've consecrated myself for these people. And not only them, but the next verse says, also, I ask not only for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. So what he's saying by saying, I consecrate myself for them, is that the reason you and I can say, my life and death for the cause of Christ is that our hearts have been opened when Christ said, my life and death for you. Christ says, For me, to live is Dave. For me, to live is Mike. To live is Hannah. To live is Don. To live is Kathy. To live. This is what I'm living for. This is what I'm dying for. This is what I'm running the race for. It's the joy set before me that allows me to endure the cross. You. For me to live is you. And when you see that, when you gaze at the cross and you ponder all of its meanings and all the nuances that are there and you picture that and you start to get it into your heart and not just your head, you come to a place where you can say, Jesus, because you said, for me to live is Mike. And I can say, okay, then Jesus, for me to live is you. I want to give you four little application points. First of all, make a decision today. Bow your knee to mediocrity and tolerance and fear. Or bow your knee to the cause of Jesus Christ. And say, I will live my life, the purpose of my life, the definition of my life, to exalt Jesus Christ by my life or death. Joy is not found in the circumstances of your life. It's found in your definition. Change your definition today. What is your life? That's where your joy is. Maybe for you, that just means having that boldness. Maybe for you, that means you need to change some things. Maybe that means I need to change my living situation because I'm doing something that is not exalting Christ. It's the opposite. Maybe that means laying aside some hobby, some passion. So I don't know what it is. Decide. 
Change your definition. Two, there's something Paul says that can be easily missed. It's in, it is vitally important. I know that through your prayers and the help that comes from the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. He knows that you can't just walk out the door and say, by golly, I'm going to do this. He knows that it's a struggle and an ongoing battle and a temptation. And he knows that he can't do it alone. And so if Jesus' star quarterback could not do it alone, neither can you. You need community. You need people. You need to be in a small group. You need someone in your life who's going to tell you the truth about yourself and not just try to please you. You need someone in your life who's going to encourage you and to congratulate you or commend you or pray for you or challenge you and say, this is where Christ has been or could be exalted in your life. Go for it. Be there. Do that. You need people who will pray for you, who will tell you the truth, who will spur you on in this journey. Get those people in your life and be with them in community. If Paul couldn't do it alone, neither can you. Third, you need prayer. We have to develop a life of praying for one another. Through your prayers, I know that I'll have the boldness that this will work out in the character, the salvation of someone who to the end will live and die for the exaltation of Jesus. We have to pray. We have to learn to pray. We have to discipline the, the art of prayer. And lastly, we need the, the help that comes from the Holy Spirit. That always sounds kind of vague. What does that look like? I remember um, being asked to speak at a youth group once, years ago, and I knew the youth group. It was our own youth group. Um, it was, but I wasn't the normal speaker. So I remember writing a talk and then looking at this talk going, God, why in the world would any of these kids listen to me? They're not interested. What's going what's gonna to happen here? What, why am I wasting my time? Why am I wasting their time if this doesn't do anything? So I began to pray. And the Lord led me in here. And I got down on my knees on this step right here. And I began to picture every single one of those kids by name and ask for those kids, the ones I knew anyway. Lord, give me so-and-so. Give us so-and-so. God, and as I did that, a burden for these kids welled up in my heart. And I was able to go into that meeting with that burden for these kids that transformed the way I spoke to them. And the other thing that transformed the way I spoke to them was knowing that God was doing a work and it wasn't all on my shoulders. I didn't have to worry about the right words or being cool enough or impressive enough or, or making sure I could connect with them. Jesus himself was there and he would do a work. And that changed the way I spoke that day. And I, I think two kids made a decision for Jesus that night came forward and gave their lives to Christ. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We can't go it alone. Decide. Community. Prayer. The Holy Spirit. Four things. Let's pray. Father, fill us with that spirit that helps us now. 
Let us not trust our own wits and understanding. I ask now that you free us from our prison cells of fear and mediocrity and give us the courage to stand and declare my life and death for the exaltation of Christ. Lord, for some people in here, I believe that you are revealing right now a step that needs to be taken A step in which we're saying, I'm still living for this. I'm still living for that. I'm prioritizing this relationship over you, and I know it's not honoring you, and you're asking me to lay it aside or to change it in some way. Or, Lord, I know that I'm still hooked on this addiction and refusing to humble myself and get help. I know it's not exalting Jesus. Lord, I need to expose it. Give me the, the strength, Holy Spirit, help me with this. Lord, where, where in my life do I need to take a step to exalt Christ? God, help us now. And I pray that this declaration would come from the joy of receiving your gift, that on the cross you are saying, my life for you. And that it's done. And that it doesn't depend on our performance. And that we are yours. We're claimed by your love and your blood. You gave everything. You invested everything. And you're not about to let that go or give it up. That changes us from the inside out if we allow it to. I pray that we'd be exhilarated by the blue sky and the fresh air that comes from the freedom of being able to live for you with total abandon. I pray that for myself to tackle my doubts and my fears. I pray that for everyone here. I pray that we would know today Christ was exalted in my body. I pray there would be joy here that circumstances cannot touch because it is our life and circumstances cannot touch that life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.